Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. All right, so today we are joined by Dave Whalen. And uh, Dave, I'm gonna just ask you to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure, sure. I'm Dave Whalen with Niagara University's Disability Awareness Training Program. We have a first responder disability awareness training office, which is one of our signature programs we'll be talking about today. We also have an emergency management disability awareness training program, which is related but distinctly different. Uh, I started disability awareness training in 2004. I've done about 650 trainings. Uh, I take the position everyone needs disability awareness training to varying degrees, whether you're uh, very much involved and active in the disability community. Uh, there's always things and areas and items and topics to learn. Uh, or you're just uh, an everyday person that wants to know more about disabilities. There's, there's a lot out there. I've been in the field of disability since 1986. I actually started as a disability service provider at Niagara County ARC on ARC. I uh, was an administrator overseeing residential programs, day programs, employment programs, a clinic. In 1997, or 11 years after my tenure started at uh, the agency, I became the parent of a child with a developmental disability. My twins, David and Rachel, were born 11 weeks premature. Uh, my son was two pounds, four ounces. Rachel was two pounds, 15 ounces. Uh, from my son's premature birth, one of the main indicators of cerebral palsy is premature birth at about an 85% clip. Uh, so David has spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. He's a power wheelchair user. He has a learning disability, dysarthria, which is a speech disability. He has low vision uh, and he has seizure disorder. Though he hasn't had a seizure in about nine years. Uh, so I went from a service provider to a parent of a child with a developmental disability. Uh, and you continue to learn a lot more when you are now actively living or what we say lived experience. So while I don't have a disability, my lived experience is uh, my son with a disability. Uh, and then again, started the business in 2004, came together with Niagara University in 2010, when my college friend uh, at the time was the chair of the criminal justice department here at the university. We came together for the uh, grant application from for from the New York State Developmental Disabilities Planning Council uh, for their first responder disability awareness training uh, grant, which we were awarded over 26 other applicants. And that's what started us on our way to what we're doing here today. Very good. Thank you for that that history. And Dave, I've seen you present several times and we've talked a bunch and I just learned, I feel like several new things about you. Um, so thanks for, for sharing a little bit of that background, because one of the things that I think is always important for us to know from our guests specifically is sort of, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning and why is this important to you? And I think that you uh, have shared that with us. So thank you for giving us that, that sort of history. And then we're also joined today by Dermot Whalen, same last name, not related, <laughs> but Dermot. Uh, tell us a little bit about your interaction with, um, with Dave and what you understand about the work that he does too. So I met Dave uh, quite a few years ago now uh, when I was an investigator at the New York State Justice Center for the Protection of People with Special Needs. And uh, we really liked what he was doing, introducing, because my law enforcement background especially, uh, it was, I'm still in law enforcement technically with the Justice Center, and we wanted to learn more about really how to integrate knowledge of disabilities with law enforcement, because law enforcement quite often find themselves 
as the first initial primary responders to incidents where you know people are in some kind of crisis or involved in uh, in an incident, maybe as a witness or a victim. And the Justice Center was primarily focused on serving people with disabilities or vulnerable populations, I should say, extended beyond just people with disabilities. So Dave and I met, I actually attain, uh, attended his train to trainer course so that we from the Justice Center could supplement his initiative and actually offer training through the Justice Center more localized uh, for law enforcement to, because I think what the Justice Center's mission was married very well with what what David and, and his company were doing. Uh, there was, you know, now you have a, a state agency that was going to be a direct resource for law enforcement to really supplement and help people with disabilities in, in a lot of ways. If local law enforcement had a case involving somebody with a disability that was a victim or witness of crime. So it was a fantastic training course. Uh, we went through it um, and I became actually a trainer, certified trainer for um, his course and conducted a few trainings for local law enforcement while I was at the Justice Center and really helped create the, the, the program from the Justice Center and uh, to help deliver that, uh, that amalgamation, if you will, of David's material. We stayed strictly to David's material as well as you know, some information about the Justice Center. I think it was you know, just a great enhancement uh, on, on both ends. So I, I love what Dave has been doing. It's really important, especially coming from my law enforcement lens, you know, working in New York City and then working in the city of Albany as, as a police officer. It's, it's a much, much needed course and it's much needed information. So I, I, it's like all coming full circle because David said how everybody needs some sort of disability awareness training, right? And then Dermot, I hear you saying how it's so great for law enforcement and your colleagues and really that multidisciplinary approach of working together. And then I'm thinking about how I first met Dave uh, because I met him when he did a training for our Child Advocacy Center multidisciplinary team. So I think that I'm going to come back to something you said initially, Dave, when you were introducing yourself about how everybody should sort of have some sort of disability awareness training. So how does your program make that happen? Like how do you, how do you reach the people that, that really um, can benefit from this information? Yes, yeah, Stacey, I think it's, it's important, first of all, that people have a base understanding of disability, proper etiquette interaction skills, uh, person first and identity first language, you know, the, the, different, uh, the different mannerisms that call for uh, understanding um, how to interact because that, that's the lead into uh, showing that you know how to uh, know how to and uh, have an education on properly responding to people with disabilities. People with disabilities know how they should be approached. They're the most discriminated minority in the country. The Obama administration recognized people with disabilities as the most discriminated minority in the country. You ask 25 people at lunch today what's the most discriminated minority in the country. You might go over 25 with, with people identifying people with disabilities. So we have this big disconnect. Uh, and that disconnect comes to play in all facets of life. I'm on a college campus. We have a lot of work to do to be appropriate to responding to students. And we're, and we're getting to that. We're getting there. Uh, but that's a process. Um, we have a federal law that dictates how we should, should properly respond. But many, many entities don't abide by that, they, but they don't understand it. Right. Not because they don't care, but because they don't know, right? That it, lack of understanding or awareness that you're talking about. Exactly. And they don't know where to turn. So that's where we come to play. Uh, we're actually in the process of, of making our program an institute on disability awareness. Uh, and we're going to have different facets that start with a, a disability awareness training 101, for instance, just give me the basics. Uh, and that could be a law firm, that could be uh, clerks at the, at the local grocery store, 
uh, and that could be first responders and every and every business out there from corporate America to to to, to a small business. Um, so the, the 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 issue is people don't necessarily know where to turn. The effort has to come from them. You know, we recognize attitude by the National Council on Disabilities, which dictates to the federal government uh, the, in essence, the agenda, the disability agenda in this country. And you will see attitude is one of the pre prevalent issues. And that is attitude is not the fact that they don't care. It's that they might not put the effort forward to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we find when we have educated individuals is it opens up to that, uh, you know, our, our current trends as they should be the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, push that should have been around years ago. When we were talking about inclusion with the disability community 25, 30, 40 years ago, right. you know, in a lot of ways, we were first on, on board with the inclusion initiative. Uh, so to be included, I need to understand how how to do that as a first responder, as a university, as a business, et cetera, et cetera. So when we say everyone needs it, our intention is to customize it for that audience. So we have, I personally have, my, my, I still maintain my disability awareness training business, about 50 different trainings in my cadre. Because when I train school teachers, it's not what police officers get. But when we train police officers, it's not what firefighters get. And when we train municipal employees, that's not what we give anyone else. We want that audience to hear what they need to hear. So our first responder training takes us down that road to give law enforcement. And even within law enforcement, we're in the process now of developing a probation officer training because that's mm -hmm. different than patrol. Right. And we're looking at correction officer training because that's different than patrol and probation. Mm -hmm. So we want the audience to get what they need. It starts with the, the basics, the one-on-one, if you will. Okay. So the, the awareness comes first. Right. And then it's the, the understanding. And I love how you said that really it's for anybody. And it's making me think about some of the things that we've seen um, and even shared on our social media lately about, you know, like ballparks and amusement parks having areas specific for folks with disabilities who maybe have sensory needs and, you know, want to be able to participate as they should, you know, be able to access things like sporting events and amusement parks but to have a safe way for them to do that, a way that, that meets them where they're at and meets their needs. So, you know, as we think about the work that you're doing, so much of what I understood a bit before this conversation, of course, was pertaining to law enforcement, other first responders. But I think that that awareness piece for all businesses, you talked about, you know, municipalities, anybody, so that they can think about, okay, so what's my role in making sure that people with disabilities can access my company, my business, my, you know, whatever the thing is that they, they interact with. And I think we see more of what you're talking about in the, you know, in the media when it comes to first responders, but for the most part, it's really for anybody, right? We need to make sure that we're really getting this information out there. Um, and I like how you talked about customized trainings, because I think, like you said, it's going to be different information required depending on who your audience is. Yeah. And actually what you're talking about, the, the concept is called universal accessibility. So the Americans with Disabilities Act is the base. That's not, that's not the do all end all, that's where we start. We build up to what the universal design was the concept, actually an architect out of North Carolina, Ron Mace, who started it in the nineties saying, wait, let's look at it usable, usable by most people. So for instance, we think of a power door going into a building and think that's for someone who uses a wheelchair. No, that's for someone who uh, has, is pushing a stroller into that building just the same. And that's for, that's for you or I walking in when we got our hands full with bags and groceries or, or packages. 
Uh, yeah. So it, that's the concept that, that's out there. You talk about sensory, which is a common trait among some people with autism, but it's not just people with autism. True. Yeah. My son has what we call startle effect. He wears power earmuffs when we go to a sporting event. Even when we go to music, he'll wear power earmuffs as much as he likes the music because that startle ruins, it ruins the moment for him. Right. So you say ballparks, accessibility is where can I be? Where can I sit? And by law, I'm supposed to have that option. But now we're finding, I'm told that where the Cleveland Cavaliers play, I don't know the name of the arena because the arena names change every couple of years, Right. Um, that they have a sensory suite. Mm -hmm. I consult with the Erie County Fair locally. We're going to have a sensory day this year. And we're in the process of developing that so people can come. We can turn turn off the midway, turn off the sounds and the, the sirens and the lights so people can come and enjoy the experience. So that that's that's the road we're going down here. Universal accessibility is for all. And we're all go, we're all getting there. Mm -hmm. It's the only minority you can unwillingly join. If you live long enough, welcome to the club. Right. And it's you know, it's in our lives. You know, mm -hmm. I, I I ask audiences, I ask my first responders. You know, raise your hand if you have someone in your life with Alzheimer's disease or had someone. Four-fifths of the hands go up. Mm -hmm. Raise your hand if there's a person in your life with disability. Hands go up. It's a fact of American life that disability will be in your life. It'll be in mm -hmm. your family. Uh, so it, it, you know, this is not something that's for those people. It's for all of us. Uh, and the, the, the challenge is that disability is such a wide spectrum. You know, it, it, and sometimes, you know, there's a lack of recognition across the disability spectrum. So someone with, say, involved autism versus someone with mild autism, you know, we, we have some of the smartest people on this planet are people with autism uh, who are doing well, but that's not always understood. Right. But is there a connection with that, that uh, wounded warrior coming back who now has a disability uh, and that person with learning disability? Tom Cruise and Charles Schwab and Richard Branson have learning disabilities. They, they can't read. Yeah, but they're successful. So it's such a gamut that people don't quite grasp. And all of those people that I'm mentioning can and will be, if they're involved with some form of law enforcement interaction, challenged. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So Dermot, I see you taking notes over there. You, uh, no, I'm, I'm, got a I'm, taking, I'm taking a lot of mental notes right now, Stacey, because a lot of what David is saying is, is very, very interesting and on point. Because, you know, think about we are undoing, you know, hundreds of years worth of stereotyping, right? Think with the ADA is passed in 1990. To me, that's very recent history. Sure, it's what, 32 years ago now, but that's very recent history. And when you think about the, the, the separation from society, especially, let's just talk about America, right? In the colonial eras, it's the first asylums that were created people with mental health disorders and, and other disorders and intellectual development and disabilities were just swept away from society and locked away, out of sight, out of mind. Now we're, we're making this societal push to, to have this integration and afford equal rights and opportunities. And like you said, David, the, uh, disability is so widespread and diverse that people, even though it's, it is the largest minority group in the United States right now, people are interacting with maybe certain aspects of disabilities or certain disabilities, and they're not familiar with other disabilities, which creates you know, barriers for people. And one of the, the things I, I, we at MCG, when we're presenting, especially to certain audiences, is you know, one of the main obstacles is becoming comfortable or familiar with people with disabilities, because quite often we don't know how to act around people with disabilities until we become familiar with them. And, you know, I, be, I became familiar, I'll share a quick story. My, my brother-in-law, 
uh, was in a car accident 31 years ago and he broke his neck and was diagnosed with quadriplegia. He utilized a wheelchair to ambulate. Very successful life. Uh, married, triplets, you know, successful, lives out on his own, independent drives, does everything. I had to adjust my mindset because I used to use language like, oh, he's confined to a wheelchair. No, he's actually not confined. He just uses a wheelchair to ambulate. He can drive. He got married. Like I said, he had kids. He has a very productive life. So it's just an aspect of him now. And, you know, over the last 31 years, I noticed almost immediately post-injury how people reacted to him. They were so uncomfortable around him. I'm like, wait, this is just a guy who uses a wheelchair to ambulate. Why are you so uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was shocking. And I, I even had an incident one time where we had a, a guy who was uh, diagnosed with paraplegia. He was dealing, you know, drugs in the Bronx and he was the subject of an arrest. And, you know, when I, when I came out of the observation post and the other officers were surrounding him, they didn't know what to do. They didn't even know how to talk to him. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, now here's the conversation. Cause I was comfortable. I wasn't unfamiliar with people who utilized wheelchairs. So I, I had a, like a positive interaction with the guy that was getting placed under arrest at the time. Fast forward multiple years, and now I'm working at the Justice Center, and it was an adjustment for me to now interact with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities of all walks of life, and I had to become more familiar with that. I kind of had to get over myself, my own awkwardness, and I think one of the things you you hit on, which is so important, is you. I think you really have to adopt the mindset that these are people, and when you start establishing that basic degree of commonality then you start treating them like people and you understand that they have wants, needs, and desires. And I, as a professional, need to make certain adjustments so that I can be the type of professional that this person needs. And that's easier said than done. I think that that is the basis for shifting your mindset, but it it is a challenging mindset. But I think once you adopt that and and you're willing to embrace it and get over yourself and understand that as long as I try to do the right thing and I, I know some of the basics of how to talk to people, how to refer to people, person first language, you know, or being accepting that if this individual likes identity first language, whatever the case may be. And, and having that flexibility and that rudimentary understanding is, is really the pathway to start developing that, that high degree of comfort. But we're unwiring really decades and centuries of, of this societal programming of how we've treated people with disabilities. So in 1990, like I said, it's not that far ago. And there was challenges to that. There was pushback to that in the 90s, which, you know, got resolved in the later 90s with the Olmsted decision. Said, hey, so I, I love where things are going. Um, I, I, you know, as we talk today, I want to talk about law enforcement training because I was a trainer for law enforcement since 2000. Uh, I went to, you know, NYPD's police academy. And then I, I taught at the Zone 5 Regional Law Enforcement Academy, familiar with the state curriculum. And I'm just interested in your perspective, you know, as you've been out there teaching this disability awareness training, the challenges you've seen and and the adaptations you feel need to be made. And and I'd like to discuss some of the other issues too that law enforcement and first responders face in some tenuous situations. Well, it's a good segue, Dermot, because let me state this first and foremost. There's no shame in saying, I don't understand. I think that's totally people, true. Yeah. For anybody, we all need right. to get better at that. Yes. But but they don't. They're like, I mean, they back away. And we talk about avoidance is one of the biggest barriers with people with disabilities. I want to avoid because the person's using sign language. I don't know what to do now. The person's in a wheelchair, so I avoid them. We, we ran a training drill for our emergency management locally here. And uh, one of my colleagues who's a disability advocate and worked with the independent living center as a wheelchair user, and it's a training exercise. 
everyone who was there who was part of that training exercise walked by him. They, they never stopped to talk to him. And then they pulled these people over after and said, how can you walk by Todd? And, and he, they, the responses were, well, you know, I never really interacted with a person in a wheelchair. Someone else would know better than I. In essence, he was ignored when he was supposed to be, what can I do for you? And it's that point of, uh, that's why we run at training exercises. It's, that wasn't a real situation. Uh, but this goes circles back to disability awareness training and having that base. No shame in saying, I don't get it. I, I didn't understand. I was not comfortable in interacting with the deaf community years ago with people with mental health disorders. You have to put the time in. You know, it calls for that. Specific to law enforcement, and this is a challenge, there needs to be some transparency. And that transparency is, yes, I need this or I don't get it. Coming off a shift and say, I interacted with someone with Tourette syndrome, but I thought that was only swearing. And he or she was show, said that these were their tics. Uh, one of the things I say to, to every first responder audience I train is you have your three default responses, which it looks like the person is inebriated. No, that's cerebral palsy or that's spina bifida. It looks like they're on some form of illicit drug. No, that's Alzheimer's disease or traumatic brain injury. And then the other one is looks like they're having some form of mental health crisis or mental health disorder when it's not. It's autism or intellectual disability. So we have, the public does this because they've all heard of autism and cerebral palsy and traumatic brain injury, muscular dystrophy, dot, dot, dot. So the perception is, I know what that is, but their, their knowledge is, is very minor. It's someone in their life or it's something they saw on TV, which is very well inaccurate, especially if we're learning from Hollywood. Um, so mm -hmm. the, the, the concepts and the mindset are way off. And now I have a first responder who's involved with this going to a scene and they hear autism, intellectual disability, blind, deaf, and they think they know. But I say to every audience, clear your mind because it's probably inaccurate, it has misconceptions, or it's not complete. And mm -hmm. it's your mindset on that topic. None of these words are foreign to them. They've heard of every one of them. So it's, it's the ability to say, hey, I don't get it. I understand. I have to say that my first responder audiences, which are firefighter, EMS, 911 telecommunicators, and law enforcement, get what we're talking about about 30 minutes in. Our train the trainer is two full days of training. It's about nine hours of total content. That's no breaks. It's no lunch. That's about nine hours of content. And they get it early because they realize, whoa, I never thought of it that way. You, right. you start the training off with what we, I say discipline awareness training is a sensitivity training into an education because I need to be sensitized to understand what I haven't been doing right. And from that, I build off and you got to put time in. It's, it's not a matter of sitting through a training. You know what they say about training, we retain 50% the next day and one week we're down to 10%. So I say, you have to do your homework. You have to go back. You have to read up on the materials that are walk, that we give you. And we don't overload. You know, mm -hmm. our Tourette syndrome handout is two pages. It's every tick is right there. If you want to learn about it, it's right there have an idea, but it's okay to come back and say, I'm not sure I did that right. Mm -hmm. Cause that's how we learn and get better. Maybe, you know, the next time, or when we interact with that person, you know, again, or, you know, whatever that looks like. And, and I liked what you said, cause it takes me to some of the work that, that we do in training interviewers, right? So as we go along the sort of criminal justice process and we get to potentially a forensic interview, we think about that. We always want to have multiple hypotheses. So we always wanted to say, okay, it could be 
this, or it could be this, or it could be something entirely different that I haven't thought of yet. And I think if we approach every person, every situation with that really open mind, instead of saying, oh, I've seen this before, that person probably has autism, right? It could be that they have autism. It could be that they have a mental health disorder. It could be something else is going on, or it could be a combination of any of those things, because certainly people can be you know, diagnosed with more than one disability, mental health disorder. So, you know, comorbidity, comorbidities, excuse me, also. So I think, you know, it's, it's that clear your mind thing. I really like how you said that because it's like, okay, you're probably wrong because our initial reaction is important. We have to pay attention to it, but it's likely missing a lot of information because all it is, is our first impression. So, right. How can we sort of wipe our brains and approach it a little bit differently back to Dermot's point, this is a person and they're having this, you know, behavior or I'm making this observation. What does that mean? Could mean something, could mean nothing, but how's it going to affect my job and my interaction ultimately with the person so that I can do my job and keep them safe and keep me safe and all the things that first responders have to be thinking about at the same time. Absolutely. And to, just to play off of that, I, I, I talk about two, what would be maybe most consistent across all disabilities. And again, never all and never, and I always use the word may, not will, mm -hmm. unless yes. there is a will. It's very, but two things that uh, we, we stress. Uh, and these are the barriers, what's come the barriers that we talk about with uh, disability awareness training and why we do it. I've already talked about one, my attitude, my mindset, and my willingness to make, take, take that step forward. Uh, physical barriers, which we referenced in, in, in structures and such, which are not necessarily something we get into with first responders, but we'll get into that with municipalities and businesses and such. Uh, but the third is communication. So the ability to, to verbally communicate my, in that moment, the, that what ties into that, that, that's a, that's a, that can be consistent across uh, disabilities. It doesn't mean I can't speak. It might not mean I can't speak well. Some of my colleagues with traumatic brain injury will talk about how uh, words come out, it's all garbled. There's no presentation. We say 40 to 50% of disabilities are hidden, unobvious, or invisible. So I see someone who looks like they present perfectly well, but their challenges may be in processing, uh, the ability to process and understand, to say what I mean. Someone with intellectual disability, we talk about plain English, basic language, uh, be conscious of the vocabulary you're using. Uh, so the, the, uh, uh, communication barriers tied into the other side, anxiety. Mm -hmm. So what's a 911 call? So anyone is going to have some kind of stress, uh, increased heart rate, uh, anxiety. Right. Anxiety for certain individuals across the disability spectrum will really be spike and what we call manifest that disability. So back to contact with people with Tourette's syndrome, ticks are going to be more prevalent with stress, anxiety, excitement. Yeah. Some with autism is going to anxiety. We could find what we call a maladaptive or negative behavior. Sometimes the term meltdown is used. Uh, my son has anxiety amongst the five disabilities I mentioned. I talked about those because those are his comorbid conditions from his congenital brain injury, but based on the premature birth. When my son's anxiety spikes, words cannot come out of his mouth. He mm -hmm. literally cannot speak. I've right. witnessed this. And now I have a first responder saying, is there saying what's going on here and go back to those default I call it the default responses you know he or she can't or is not and the big point that I stress with everyone as much as we talk about disability let's not overlook that most of these individuals are going to be very competent mm -hmm. it's not cognitively there's not an intellectual or cognitive disability even if there is it doesn't mean that they're not competent right 
you know, so, right. so Dermot, you talk about your, your brother-in-law using a wheelchair. I see the, see the same with my son. You know, the, the thought is a lack of intelligence and an inability where it's just the opposite. Mm -hmm. you know, Stephen Hawking, when he was on the planet, was considered the smartest person on the planet. His show on PBS was called Genius. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. We give that example in our trainings all the time, too. All okay. the time, too. We do, absolutely. Because it's like if you walked, in, walked up to Stephen Hawking in a bar not knowing who he was, right? Yeah, would you have had a, a reaction? And the answer, and Dave, so Dave is looking at me like I say the same thing, too. Yeah, if you walked up to him in a bar, what would you think? What would your brain do? That's the clear your mind piece, right? So what I encourage people to do at our trainings, and it sounds like you do the same, instead of assuming that the person has, you know, low intellect or an intellectual disability, and like you mentioned, even folks with intellectual disability, highly competent, um, maybe assume they could be as smart as Stephen Hawking, right? But I say that and people are like, you know, blows their mind a little. It's like, it's true though, it, you know, it could, that, that person existed. So it's not so, it's not so out of, you know, out of the realm of possibility, but. Yeah, it's that reaction. It's so funny that you say that. We do we teach the same thing. Well, I see that with my deaf colleagues too. It's the mm -hmm. same the the inability to to verbalize when, uh, and, I, and you know we've talked a lot about here, but not to overlook the sensory disabilities who also pose that also pose different challenges. Uh, and you go back to you know people say to me, why do you do disability awareness training? If I use it, a couple of words, it's quality of life. My quality of life is affected when you don't look at me as an equal, as a person, as a competent individual. Uh, yeah. Me and my son will be out in public and people come up to us and say, what's his name? And I say, ask him. Right. And I give the example, what if you were out with your friend, partner, spouse, coworker at lunch, and someone you knew walked up to you and looked at the person you were with and said, what's his or her name? Mm -hmm. you, would want, you would think they were straight. You would wonder what's wrong with them. Right. But with the disability community, we, we don't do this. So quality of life is based on how you see me, which is based on simple dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. So when we see an individual and we, we have these conversations, these thoughts, we immediately see them as less than a person when it's just as, as Dermot said, look beyond the wheelchair. You know, just it, it's the person. Mm -hmm. You, it's inherent upon you to understand proper etiquette, interaction skills, proper language skills. And it's okay. I, I call it what I call teachable moments. When someone says handicapped parking, I say, we don't hate, say handicap anymore. That's an accessible parking spot. That's an accessible bathroom. That's an accessible seat at the ballpark. Right. Uh, and that symbol is an international symbol. I was in Mexico city uh, a couple of weeks ago, visiting my daughter. The symbols all over the place, although it's not a very accessible city, but that's another discussion. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think that accessibility piece is important because just what you're talking about, that the quality, the quality of life and what going back to some of our original thoughts, what can, you know, businesses do? It's the awareness. It's just understanding, making sure it's accessible, right? By all, by, by most majority. And, and to your point, um, it's, it's everybody. And, and as you were saying, you know, your hands full of stroller, I'm thinking about all the times when I've walked up to a store and gosh, one of those doors would have been really handy and convenient for me to access your business, right? I'm just thinking about that too. So that accessibility piece, I think is just is so important and it's accessibility on all levels. So whether it's physical accessibility, communication, and that can be written, that can be oral, there, you know, all the ways that we communicate with the world and expect people to understand what's going on around them and making sure that that information is accessible to them as well. So how, you know, how can we do a better job of that in, in all areas, 
that uh, that we work in and all the things all the things that we do. But the communication is, of course, the biggest piece from our training perspective and making sure that people have access to the criminal justice system, right? To being able to go to court and say what's happened to them, even if they don't communicate in the same way that you know that someone else does, that another victim might. And you know, when you were talking about that communication piece, that that just really that that struck me and made me think about the work we're doing and why it's so very important. And, you know, if someone's anxious, whether they have a disability or not, their ability to communicate is gonna be affected, right? Even if you think about if um, you know, you've ever been pulled over on the highway or go past a police officer when you're maybe going a little faster than you should, you know, your heart responds and your brain responds. It's like, that that's something that happens to everyone. It's a universal experience. And, you know, how it affects us is different depending on, you know, our, our worldview, our previous experience, if we have trauma history, right, whether or not we have a mental health diagnosis, a disability, or, or you know, anything else going on, um, I think it's all affected. So that, that person accessibility piece, I think, is just really huge, David, that you talked about. I think that's great. Good. Um, I know that Dermot had another question for you, though. Well, I, have, I have a few things. Up. You do? I could just see his brain turning. So, so for our listeners, no, I, this, I can see Dermot's face. And I can tell he's got, he's got more questions. All right. So Dermot, let's, let's hear him. So, you know, David, one, one of the things that I would love to see happen in, in many fields is that people take the time to deliberately mingle, co-mingle with people with disabilities, like take the time. Like I'd love to see law enforcement walk into a debilitation program or you know a residential group home and and just like get to know people right because that that familiarity i think breeds comfortness and awareness like in in a way that sitting inside a classroom will not right it's that hands-on interaction like i can understand the theory but now i need to see it like in real life i need that practical application so i'd love to see that happen because i think it would help mitigate a lot of problems that result on the street but uh, coming from a law enforcement training perspective, I'm curious to see what challenges you face in, in your education endeavors, because knowing, knowing what I learned when I went through, you know, NYPD's academy, understanding their policy, their, their procedural response to things. Um, first, I, I, and I apologize for jumping a little bit, but from a law enforcement lens, I think this is a challenge for, for us collectively and what we do is that the training that police officers receive is often officer safety focused as it should be, right? Because safety is paramount for everybody involved. But there has to come this balance where you know, safety, safety can be approached and retained and maintained, I think, by communication and a good assessment of what's going on and being able to adjust on the fly. But with, with training with regards to mental health disorders, you become aware of certain mental health disorders. And then again, that practical experience is, well, I interact with people with mental health disorders or people who are in crisis on certain situations. And that's typically when they're in crisis. I don't have this, this opportunity to calmly interact and talk to people about like maybe a mental health disorder that they have and what it's like living with a mental health disorder or interacting with people with an intellectual developmental disability and finding out about that person and what it's like to be that person. Um, so, you know, from my experience, law enforcement's typical involvement with the disability world comes when somebody's in crisis. And 
there seems to be this melding together conceptually that mental health disorders and intellectual developmental disabilities are one and the same thing. And I'm hoping for our audience, you can explain what the differences are between mental health disorders and intellectual disabilities. And that's gonna kind of segue my conversation into further things. Sure, sure. Like I, I'm gonna bounce off a couple of things you said there leading into that. Uh, to, to, to your point of what we call community outreach, you know, starting there when you talked about getting more involved. Um, if you folks haven't watched, you can see our, our uh, mini documentary on the unfortunate death of Ethan Saylor, a young man with Down syndrome in 2013 uh, by Frederick Merrill and Sheriff's deputies in the movie theater, which went national and uh, spiked into a U.S. Senate hearing in uh, April 2014. Um, and in there, you're going to see the former chief of my town, John Askey, who talks about we could just check a box and go through training, but it's more than that. It's community outreach. It's uh, he, they have a program where people with developmental disabilities will work in the police department through an internship through the school district. Uh, I run a challenger baseball league for ball players. Every year we have Amherst police day and about 30 officers volunteer their time on a Sunday morning and come in and uh, volunteer. It's more than just a nice thing to put on Facebook. Uh, disabilities are understood. Relationships are, are formed. Uh, and that, that's key to, to that. We're developing a quality assurance, quality improvement program. We've actually done it. We're, we're going to look to accredit police departments and fire departments. And one of the checklist items out to become accredited is to have a visit to local programs. Uh, be, be a, it could be a senior care facility. Uh, it could be a day habilitation program, be a mental health facility. It could be a school with a, with a, a special education classroom. Uh, so that they're, they're involved with the, the disability community, not on a call off call uh, uh and your point too about safety um people with disabilities are criminals they do commit acts they do they drive inebriated you, you mentioned the uh individual who's a wheelchair user in new york city who was uh, dealing drugs we've had the same thing in buffalo um so we understand that and we our first slide in our law enforcement training is safety first uh because we have to be conscious of that and there could be those actions our intention and, and our model is what we call the rare model which is recognize the indicators or characteristics so you can identify the disability. Now I think I'm dealing with someone who's blind, someone with Tourette syndrome, someone with autism, et cetera, which leads to my proper approach, which then carries into my interactions and how that comes to play, defined per disability, which leads to my response. Response is in the moment, of course. Response could be an hour from now. Response could be the next day. There could be some ongoing presence here to address that. When we talk about that from a mental health standpoint, same thing comes to play. There's a lot of training out there for law enforcement and mental health, the crisis intervention training, uh, New York State's curriculum, which is which I have right here, which is very extensive and very well done. We've developed actually a mental health disorder training just for law enforcement. Uh, we recognize in that context. It goes back to a couple of comments we made earlier. And, and Stacy said this with comorbid or co-occurring co conditions. Well, first of all, I mentioned my son's five disabilities. I added on the six with anxiety. Uh, we're all prone to, to disabilities, excuse me, to mental health disorders as Americans. Mm -hmm. The two quickest ways you and I join the disability community are a car accident, which can lead to a spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury and major depressive disorder. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's inherent on us to understand proper mental health and proper response. The mental health first aid initiative that's out there in this country. So that's for everyone to learn. The interface with, with the uh, other disabilities outside of the mental health spectrum is, is very key. And it's, it's an involved question, Dermot, because it's 
understanding each mental health disorder, the huge spectrum. Every disability has a spectrum. We hear autism spectrum disorders. If anyone's ever picked up and read the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, it's really thick and there's a lot in there. It's not just schizophrenia. There's six, seven versions of it. It's not just bipolar disorder. There's six, seven versions of it. So we need to understand those base mental health disorders, which allows us under the rare model to recognize the indicators. And it goes back to what I'm dealing with in the moment. So in the moment, uh, I'll use again, my son as an example. When he went to school, when he was in K to 12, I didn't want them focusing on his cerebral palsy. Yeah, his therapies did that, his OT and his PT and his speech. I wanted to fuck them to focus on his learning disability because that's what academics is about, his ability to learn in that moment. So in a, in a first responder scenario, what am I dealing with here in the moment? So we talked about anxiety spiking. I might not have general anxiety disorder, which 40 million Americans, by the way, have some form of anxiety disorder. And people hear that and say, well, that's too many. Most, most, most people in the mental health spectrum are doing just fine. Exactly. Yeah. Walking, walking amongst all of us every day. Yep. Right. I have 20 people in my life with major depressive disorder. You could spend a month with 17 of them and say, I thought you said they had depression. They do. They're fine. Notice I said right. 17 and not all 20. Right. The three, there's three in my life that have some serious challenges, but it can be healed. It can be addressed. When we talk about developmental disabilities and mental health disorders, there is a there is a unfortunate trend out there in some contexts, especially in some law enforcement trainings, that group the two together. Mm-hmm. Mental developmental disabilities are, are based on neurological impairments. It's, it's it's neurodiversity we're talking about. So why do we see a connection with many people with? Uh, development disabilities, cerebral palsy and seizure disorder, autism and seizure disorder, intellectual disability and seizure disorder. It's a wiring of the brain. It's, it's, that, it's that neurological impairment that, that's crossing over. Um, those presentations are not going to be ones where someone is in crises. Uh, could people be in crises? Sure, but not in the same context. You know, so it's the ability to understand the differences there, there's a handout that the uh, National Archives for Law Enforcement, and the first, it's about a five-pager, very well done. We, we include it in our, in our context that has the first, the first topic in there is intellectual disabilities are not mental health disorders or something in that context. Great. Yeah, that's uh, that, good. That intellectual disability is based on adaptive daily living skills, my ability to uh, recognize, victim, avoid victimization, gullible and naive, naivete. Um, social skills, interaction skills, money concepts, transportation, travel training, housekeeping. You know, it's, it's basic concepts that you and I take for granted. We all do them. We all have adaptive daily living skills. We just do them and to take them for granted. Right. And it's all on a spectrum for all of us too, right? right. Like exactly. all of those things. Yeah. Our ability to do them or desirability to do them. You mentioned housework and that came to my mind, but anyway, <laughs> right. Exactly. All those different things. Right, but, it, but in that context, there is some crossover because some right. of that could be presentation. So mm-hmm. we talk about in our program, the ability to recognize and identify, we, we provide that context specific to someone with an intellectual disability. So one of the things, for instance, we talk about in identification is current event questions, uh, days of the week, when my birthday is, um, you know, who the president is, what town am I in, who the governor is, you know, the, those types of questions that you would think everyone would have an answer to. Uh, someone in a, in a psychotic state or having some form of mental health crisis may also have challenges with that, but there'll be different presentations to that. Um, 
and, and you know, the ability to, we, we said this before, you know, we're all cognitive beings, but the ability to understand what's happening in the moment. I talked about that earlier in the, in the discussion here. Um, we learn, we need to then process, understand and apply and implement. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm being asked a question by a police officer, I need to understand what that question means. You know, waving the Miranda warning, for instance, we say you shouldn't be asking that to a person with intellectual disability. I know most officers are never going to take that, that advice from us, but this person doesn't understand what that is. Right. I talk about EMS. I'm going to take your blood pressure. We all, everyone knows what blood pressure is, right? You got a lot of people out there that say, fine, but wondering what's going on when this thing's starting to tighten up on their bicep. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we tend to assume that's how we look at the, at the deeper sense of this, Dermot, is how do we identify and then have the understanding across these different spectrums. You know, you, uh, the crisis intervention training is excellent training. I'm not a fan of them having an hour of d- developmental disabilities in a 40 hour block of training. It's not, in the, it's not in the right context. Mm-hmm. What I did in New York state, when I wrote the contact, the one hour pieces, I wrote about it, how disabilities interface with mental health, which is a lead into our program. The Missouri state highway patrol and, and the Kansas City Police Department have built our program into the basic course. In New York State, we are in the basic course where every new officer in New York State gets our training. Uh, in Missouri, we have to go by academy. Missouri is one of the states that we're working with and we're in, where we are in, in there through a grant from their Missouri Council on Development of Disabilities. Uh, the lieutenant we work with says, Dave, if I, if I had to rank trainings, I, I, I want yours first and mental health second. We're not, we're not here to we're not here to compare. That's not the point. It's not to, to compare a rank, but his point being, I got all these disabilities out there that I need to understand before I'm going to talk about mental health crises and mental health disorder. Right. Right. Because there's this big gamut. Obviously, with mental health, it's not all the same either. Someone with borderline personality, narcissistic personality disorders, there's a high incidence of those of those individuals getting having trouble with the law. Which, present, which presents much differently than someone with schizophrenia who's in a troubled state or someone with major depressive disorder. So we want mm-hmm. to be conscious when we say mental health as a whole too, because it's right. not one block. Right. And how people present, depending on the circumstance, depending on the moment, whether or not they're in crisis or in the middle of a crisis, which is typically when the people that we're you know, talking about show up. That's when EMS, fire and police show up in your life is when there's a crisis or emergency. So the state right, that you're in is not necessarily a trait that you have. Scott Modell, um, our, our, uh, our CEO talks about that. It's like, it can't be, you know, just because someone responds this way in this moment doesn't mean that's how they are gonna respond all the time. If you reduce some of the chaos, right? Bring some of the stimulation down, reduce anxiety to your point, it will assist people in being in the moment with you and not to clump them together because I know we're trying to separate them apart, but I think that's true for anybody, you know, regardless of disability or mental health diagnoses or whatever it is, or just if they're having a bad day, right? We have those sometimes too. So whatever that reducing chaos and reducing anxiety looks like can benefit people, but it's hard because of course, safety of all involved is, is paramount to everything. And sometimes when decisions need to be made about safety, that's when some of those other things, it seems like, you know, get sort of lost in the shuffle of trying to make sure that everybody, you know, everybody's safe. So I, you know, I think it's, it's just a, such a balancing act and first responders are expected to know so much about so many things. And it's sort of, how do we find that balance? And I love what you're talking about with, you know, departments and states 
putting this into their training curriculum because I think that's what really makes a difference brings that awareness piece that we keep talking about over and over to more of a standardized curriculum um, so that hopefully again it, it does translate out to you know the street or the call or you know whatever the the case is with um, whatever their role is in their in their moment they can really be thinking about what's going on with this person right and if we can recognize it it can affect how they how they respond is that what I hear you saying Dave yeah no absolutely in simple terms de-escalation mm -hmm. Let, let's bring the situation down so I can have now have the, the, the optimum response from the person. I have had people say to me, I've had two people with mental health disorders say to me, who were walked out in handcuffs, that cop did everything right. Okay, because when, when, I, when I, we train, I say, you're doing everything right. You're still arresting someone. Mm -hmm. When we talk to EMT, when we train EMT paramedics, you're doing everything right, even though the outcome might not have been the best for the individual from from a health or safety or, or living standpoint, for that matter. But it's it's doing everything right in line with knowing how to to interact. And again, I, I, I reference our model because we kind of cover all the bases within each within each disability. You know, we talk about response. Let me just come back to that for a minute because that's a really big piece. When I say the next day or follow up. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it could be real simple stuff. We had a guy in Niagara Falls call 911 15 nights in a row to be put to bed. And someone on the 15th night said, what are we doing? And he said, oh, you can call my case manager tomorrow. She can help you out with that. And that was taken care of. Why didn't someone ask that on the second night? Right. You know, it's the use of those community resources, those supports mm -hmm. out there. One of the big pieces that we push in our training is use these individuals. Use your deaf access services. I encountered someone who's deaf and I didn't know what to do. Call the local deaf organization, the advocacy group. That's their job. Your independent living centers, that's their job. That's what they get paid for to, to assist you on these. Your development disability service providers. If you go to a house, uh, what we would call in simple terms, a group home, a residence that services people with development disabilities, go, and you didn't like what you saw, and, and some of this stuff carries into a lot of your work with victimization and abuse. Right, mandated reporting and yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, talk to the residential manager. Look up that agency and make a call on that. You know, we, we, we can, a lot of ways you can make your job, I don't like the term, but uh, easier. But easier. Easier sounds like, but is right. utilizing these supports out there that exist, uh, that can assist you. The, the, our, our, uh, our Tourette syndrome content, all of our content has been put together by subject matter experts, most with lived experiences. Uh, she runs a Greater New York State Tourette Syndrome Association. Half of her, half of her dealings are with, law enforcement, the other half are with schools not properly educating the student with Tourette syndrome, um, but utilize these folks, give a call. It goes back to my comment on transparency. You know, don't, don't brush this off and say, oh, well, it is what it is. It's only gonna get worse and you're gonna find yourself in, in some bad spots. Um, and when those bad spots are lawsuits, those bad spots are people losing their job. Mm -hmm. And these numbers are, you know, they're, they're it's not a once in a while, folks. You know, we we had an, an undocumented stat, so I'm always cautious in using it because I had the source once upon a time that said 50 to 80% of an officer's days encountering a person with a disability. Mm -hmm. And you look at the high incidence of incarceration, you know, learning disability, ADHD, disabilities we haven't talked about. Those are the one and two incarcerated disabilities in the country. Mm -hmm. Those are the same disabilities that Tom Cruise and Charles Schwab and Richard Branson and Justin Timberlake have. Right. But those individuals can be uh, challenged from, a, from an education standpoint. And a lot of times the end result, unfortunately, is if it's not dealt with appropriately by parents and educators, we find the person spiraling and 
sometimes law enforcement is going to come to play. You're going to be arrested. Uh, so we, there's a whole bunch of different pieces that come to play with a proper response. And a lot of it starts early, but a lot of it is, is having those connections with those community resources and supports. Yeah. And knowing what they are. So it's the story about 15 times to be put to bed. Like that's, that's going to stick in my head, Dave, just so you know, because I think what you're saying is that that's not the job of a police officer to put somebody to bed 15 no. nights in a row, right? Like that's not, that's not their job. So as much as, you know, they respond to the call, of course, they're going to do that. It, it does make their job easier because they can continue to be a police officer and be responding to calls, right? That are necessary for police. That wasn't a call that was necessary for police. Someone else is out there in the world who could assist that person and not be, you know, utilizing resources because they, the person was just doing what they thought made sense, right? They were making the phone call that they needed to get their needs met and that's fine. And until, you know, you know, redirected or someone else steps in, they're going to continue to do that and, you know, use the, the resources because of course the police are going to show up every time, which is great. That's what they're supposed to do. But if that's not something that you know, is really within their role, it is going to make their job easier because it's, you know, one less sort of call that they, they would need to deal with on that, on that given night so they can focus their attention on their other responsibilities. So I think it's huge. One of my primary oh, examples that is, is just, just real quick, one of my primary examples is someone with autism who elopes. Mm-hmm. You know, have we gone back the next day and said, have we canvassed the neighborhood with a picture with the, with the names, grandma's numbers, my phone numbers, verbal, nonverbal, uh, sensory those things that are proactive uh, right. off of those incidents. Right, yeah. So what, what can we do again, if this happens again with this individual, making sure that they're safe? Yeah, Dermot, what were you gonna add? So I think like our conversation speaks to a larger problem about knowing resources that are actually available to people. So Dave, I, I just spoke at, at a seminar at the State Police Academies um, regarding like, you know, child, child abuse. And I, in my, my presentation, my background at the Justice Center and, and my work at the Justice Center came up and I actually had, it came back to me that a couple of people didn't know what the Justice Center was. Now the Justice Center has been in existence since June 30th of 2013. And people didn't know that that's a resource for law enforcement. And that they're mandated reporters to it, by the way. Yes. 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 So I'm like, wow, like you, you didn't like you didn't know this. And and I ran across that in my time at the Justice Center. Like I would make calls to some of the smaller police departments and I'd introduce myself, say, hey, I got this case. Are you investigating? They're like, wait, who are you? Where are you from? And I'm like, man, I'm one of your greatest resources. Like I can totally help you handle this investigation. You know, we can work together. There's a whole bunch of options. And it was this constant ongoing education process. So here we are nearly 10 years later, and there are still people who don't know the resources. I will tell you before working for the Justice Center, I didn't know what the ARC was. I didn't know what a private provider was. I didn't know, you know, I, I've never really called adult protective services. Maybe I'd call the child abuse hotline because I knew I was a mandated reporter if I saw something. So, you know, that educational piece has long been, I think, absent. I, I am aware that it's, it's becoming more prevalent. I mean, the work that we're doing at MCG, the work that you're doing, and I'm sure there's other people out there trying to educate uh, more and more folks in, in the, the criminal justice profession, uh, but it's it's a slow it's a slow move. So I, I think one it, it, this kind of segues nicely to a question that, that I have for you. You've been training dispatchers. Have dispatchers started to incorporate around the state or the country started to incorporate more like deliberate questions if they get a call that it seems like someone's behaving erratically, like if it's, you know, that EDP call, that emotionally disturbed person call, or if there's something going on where there's an erratic behavior, they 
are they asking questions, specific questions, to find out if the individual that is the subject of the call has some type of mental health disorder or developmental disability or intellectual disability that might be the underlying factor, an underlying factor or consideration uh, in the incident? Dermot, it starts with the 911 call. It starts with the telecommunicators. Um, the reason we're with, uh, let me take a step back. The National Emergency Numbers Association, the 911 Association, they, we have a signed agreement with them. They came to us recognizing, hey, we could start this up right. And I'm cautious of saying wrong because there's people being dispatched right now. And it's not necessarily wrong, but it lacks content to your point. It lacks the information that we want to give that dispatch police officer, firefighter, EMT, paramedic, who is now much better prepared. And of all the calls we get from for paid services, it comes from, from 911 public safety entry points, 911 call centers. Um, we were just in Maryland last week. We'll be in Michigan. We were in the state of Washington. We were in Tennessee a couple of years ago. Um, that is key. We give them that information. Uh, we, we train them on what to ask for, how to ask for it. We actually have protocol that we give them for autism and intellectual disability. So here's the questions you can ask. And we're looking at saying, hey, do we need to expand those protocols? Now we explain the other disabilities to them, but we look at it, we look at it kind of a, as a three or four fold approach here. One, they're not seeing the individual. There's no face to face. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, while it's much related to what we do with fire EMS law enforcement, there are distinct differences. We go through every speech disability. We have audio calls that are people with dysarthria, aphasia, apraxia, um, a stuttering, laryngectomy, so that they're understanding that this is not a robot calling, that there's going to be pauses. Uh, we say that a call from someone with a, a speech disability or, or other disabilities like autism, there's a could be a seven to 14 second delay. Mm -hmm. That was seven seconds. People, people out there, and actually, I, I probably rushed that because you guys are looking at me like, what are you doing, Dave? No, I knew exactly what you were doing because I do it in training all the time because we tell people to wait eight to 10 seconds before asking another question. Oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> and well, I was like, I know exactly. I, I can tell you were tapping away and you were thinking okay, seven seconds in your head, but it does feel like an eternity to your point right. for our listeners. There's nothing wrong with your, with your podcast. There is a point being made here. That feels like an eternity. And you got to get there. I mean, I lived it with my son and I realized over time, you know, his, his, his response takes time. When I ask him a question, I have to be patient. Well, once upon a time, I wasn't patient. Like, you know, what do you think, bud? You know, like, I kind of like that wasn't waiting seven, eight seconds. So the, the point being is that they need to be conditioned. They need to be again, sensitized and educated, like I said earlier. And then that, so that's, that's one piece is a, is a speech disability. Secondly, what is the interface with the first responder being dispatched? So I could be calling about my son. You're going to get everything straight. You're going to get a very good response, but you still don't understand and see what's happening. So you're learning about the disabilities as they're being presented in the moment, because you need to understand what might be happening with that person specific mm -hmm. to that. Then my point being with the, of the interface with the dispatch is giving them the right information, knowing what to ask, so that I can give them more. And that I have many first responders that say, oh, yeah, that it would be perfect for our, our dispatch centers, but then apply it. 
The nice part about what our uh, dispatch has, and we do this for fire, EMS, and law enforcement, we have what we call resource manuals. So after we train, I call it for the fire department and the police department, the, um, the coffee break room manuals. Someone comes off a shift. Okay, I just interacted with someone with, they said they had this R3, they said they had Tourette's syndrome, they said they had um, spine, uh, spinal muscular atrophy. What is that? It's going to be in there. Okay, I can kind of do that. With 911, we look at it as a working tool. Mm -hmm. And we what we did in there is we highlighted everything in, in a different color that they need to know specific to that disability if and when that call comes in. So they can pull it off the shelf and in the moment be asking the questions or knowing what to look for. Um, right. Yeah. Or in yep. there, and I say in your lulls, flip through, learn, mm -hmm. learn, learn. Um, there's, there's, there's so many scenarios that could go much better just by simple information given to that, that first responder. You think of autism, verbal, nonverbal response to names, sensory issues. If they've, if they've eloped or wandered, uh, attraction to water, trains, all the different things that might come to play that would uh, best address their safety needs because that's where we're going to go. We, what we have to keep in mind is that there are people with disabilities that that are not going to know what to say to you specific to their disability, be it a cognitive disability or just, just not thinking about it because they live it every day. Right. Oh, that yeah, would so be I'm not going to say, oh, by the way, I have autism. So please, you know, do X, Y, and Z with it. Well, and even, you know, Dave, because one of the things we talk about a lot in our training is that concept of verbal and nonverbal that you brought up just a moment ago. Even within that, though, there are so many variations. So to, you know, for someone to say, oh, they're nonverbal, you know, could we have follow-up questions like, well, do they have a communication device or how do they communicate? How do they get their needs met? Because it's not always as simple, right, as verbal, nonverbal. And I would argue that it's never that simple because nonverbal means different things to different people. Or someone could be, you know, what would be classically considered verbal or they could speak, but in the moment of crisis, perhaps they won't because of their anxiety or, you know, they can't because of their anxiety. I shouldn't say, well, they can't because of their anxiety or, you know, have fear of, you know, first responders, or if they're overstimulated, aren't able to necessarily produce speech in the moment. So, you know, it's like, it's so, it's again, that balancing act of how much information can we ask for? And then what makes it useful and effective for the person responding to have that face-to-face -face with the person. So I think it's, it's hugely important, like you said, that 911 ask these questions, be prompted to ask these questions and then that information carries over to whoever's showing up so they're as prepared as they can be in the moment and then can make those interactions a whole lot a whole lot smoother so yeah there's just lots of lots of layers to this which is so great there is stacy just to spin off that quick uh what we say to first responders is if you go to a scene and you're you're believing you see you've identified a disability it's okay to ask mm -hmm. You know, do you, uh, the, our, our Susan Connors I referenced with Tourette syndrome, she says in her video shows, just recognize I have it. It, it takes off so much tension when you just know what, how I'm presenting. Now, is it okay to ask if I'm in the grocery store today and someone's in front of me? No. Okay. But that first response, a little different with the 911 telecommunicator, because you're not going to say, do you have what I, what we teach them is ask them if there's anything else I should, I need to know about you or the person you're calling about. Because mm -hmm. then that can trigger me. Oh yeah, um, um, I'm American Sign Language, or my mother's American Sign Language, or she she speaks your lip reads, whatever mm -hmm. the case may be. Right.
Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think that's great. And we we offered the same um, again later on in the process in the forensic interview. Is there anything else you think I should know about how this person communicates? Um, you know, or or what they how they might say something, or what I should know about them? What should I know about them? And it's definitely been a very useful tool in interacting with someone in that interview setting. And I could definitely see how it could be beneficial in that that scene setting as well. Oh my gosh, I feel like we could talk all day. I feel like we can talk all day and I see Dermot already has another question. Okay, go ahead, Dermot. I, I, my last twofold question. Fire so away. it's interesting because you, you just brought up something that, that is almost a natural, you think we planned it this way. What advice do you have for, especially first responders who come in contact with a victim or a witness who has an intellectual disability and are there any, so like a general way to comport themselves, and is there any type of screening questions that you might recommend they use if they notice that maybe their response is coming back, or there's some indications that this person might have an intellectual developmental disability that they can feel comfortable using? So what we say is this, and, and from a disability standpoint, uh, and proper etiquette, and go back to my question, my comment earlier about someone walking up to me and my son and asking him what his name is. We always talk to the person first who is there for no matter what the disability is. Uh, in our deaf content, the deaf advocate notes in the video, I feel victimized twice. This the second person victimizing me is the first responder because they're not even responding to me, and I'm the one the reason for the call. Mm -hmm. So as much as possible, especially when the intellectual disability or development disability, or really I should say more cognitive disability, think of your mother with Alzheimer's disease and the same thing where you're going, you're going to talk to that person. The supports then come in second. So I always say this, the, the person who's more involved with the development disability, the person who's more involved with dementia or traumatic brain injury, there's going to be someone there in their life, unless they've wandered away or eloped or someone say Alzheimer's who's wandering or like, again, wandering or elopement or for whatever reason, they're, they're alone, car accident and, and the driver, mom, dad is, is out and it's just the individual. Those cases, obviously those cases exist. But point being, I am talking to the person as much as possible until I switch over to the supports. As I said a couple of minutes ago, keep the language simple. The questions are going to be specific to what you're looking for. Note that you are now going to be building up to that question, or excuse me, that 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 uh, end result you're looking for. So, for instance, uh, we don't say to someone with intellectual disability, "Did you break the window?" Because basically, we just did what we told them they broke the window. Exactly. How did, yeah. how did the window break? Mm -hmm. um, we talk about task oriented. So if you or, you or I banged our knee last night, woke up today and it's throbbing and it's huge, we're going to, ah, about nine o'clock, I banged my knee on the table, you know, or whatever the case may be, say with, a, with an injury. That person might be talking to you and it might be three days ago that they did it, or they, but they might say it was this morning or vice versa. So we talk about task-oriented questions. You develop the chronological order uh, before breakfast, on the bus, at work, uh, at the ballpark, whatever the, whatever the scenario be, you're developing that to get an idea of, of how this might might have transpired. Um, you're not going to get straight out answers from someone like, uh, let's let's sp spin a lot into your world with with your professions, folks, with your with your agency, uh, abuse or victimization. You know, we talk about 
um, victimization of people who have elongated, especially with developmental disabilities, scenarios where they're victimized, even though they might have been, been in a scenario where they could have talked to someone, mm-hmm. be it a, a neighbor or uh, out in public. Um, you know, why, why is that not happening? Well, I always say cue in on things that might be um, indicative of abusive or victim, victimized behavior. For instance, I don't like it here. Um, they're mean to me here. I haven't had dinner yet. So, so, the, so the cues that might give us an idea that something might be wrong and never discount something that doesn't sound right, mm-hmm. even if it might be simple. If it doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up and it doesn't make, what we tend to do is we think, well, they were just going to tell me, you know, they're mm-hmm. going to, you know, if you or I were victimized, we're going to find someone to, to assist us. If we were, or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to try to reach out. Again, I'm cautious with that because I know. Right. But potentially depending on, there's so many factors that too, right. Depending on victimization and grooming, manipulation, power and control dynamics, right. All, all of those things come right. into play as to whether someone is is feeling like they're they're able to report and then to what you said a couple of minutes ago I actually had a case just like that Dave where this young girl was being uh, abused by someone in her household and she said I told my mom and her mom was mortified she's like she never I swear she never told me and so I I asked her um, in the interview I said well what did you say to your mom and she said I told my mom that I didn't like him and he made me uncomfortable well, in her mind, she was telling her mom that she was being sexually abused, but mom heard something different and, you know, additional questions weren't necessarily asked. And they were later, of course, and we were able to deal with that. But in her mind, she told somebody. So even in those circumstances, you know, do they have someone they can tell, first of all, or are they, you know, isolated or don't know that they should tell or don't recognize that it's abuse? There's all these factors that come in. So I like that, you know, listen, listen to your gut. If something feels off, you know, that's where we would use those resources, like Dermot says, whether it's the Justice Center or other local resources in your community, call the local child advocacy center. Hey, call us at MCG. We'll be happy to help. Whatever it is, you know, like, let's just get to the bottom of it. If it doesn't feel right, something doesn't add up. Like, that, that's the kind of stuff that first responders deal with all the time, right? Like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Something's going on here. So let's ask some more questions or get some other folks involved to, to assist us. And it's important to go back. And that's why we stress again, the rare model. I need to recognize and identify first, because if I don't Mm -hmm. recognize, many people with intellectual disability do not present. Mm -hmm. 85% are in what we call the mild range. They're on, Mm -hmm. they're they're in the community. They're working at stores and restaurants and businesses that you're at today and you're not recognizing. So it's, it's not easy, but that's Mm -hmm. why we need to, you know, we need to catch some of that language. If someone doesn't understand a, a simple question. um, And that's why the ability to then identify because the, the mindset shifts. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we don't rank challenges with the disability community in our in our trainings. Each one presents differently, um, but individuals. Some people with development disabilities, of course, not all. Development disabilities is a huge word, and there's all, there's like eighty of them that are in the context of it. So we're cautious in that. But some people, more so, the cognitive disability is what we should be saying. The thirty million plus Americans with a cognitive disability which includes Alzheimer's and the dementias, which includes some people with traumatic brain injury. Um, you know, there's, there's a big gamut here. Those individuals um, are going, can very well be challenged with questions, respected if they say, can you repeat yourself? Because mm-hmm. if I'm not seeing that, recognizing that disability, I'm wondering why they didn't understand my pretty basic question right now. Right. 
people that or it could be that your question wasn't as basic as you thought it was because we've encountered that before too it's like you know when we use our sort of jargon right so where were you when the incident occurred like it sounds like a really simple question but using some of our jargon to fill in our boxes on our reports sometimes it uh you know it gets lost in our brain instead of just using simple things like where were you <laughs> you know and where were you when you know the thing that happened happened and saying those exact words so it could be that they don't understand or it could be you ask a confusing question so again going back to that that balancing line of recognizing and figuring out what's the best way to approach this situation absolutely yeah. good okay so again i feel like we could talk all day dermot do you think dave answered both your questions that you just had there well i uh, to a degree i'm just wondering about further like if there are even screening questions so you know one of the things we we assert when we do our forensic interview training is assume normal intelligence until multiple data points indicate otherwise. So for us in a forensic interview setting, it might be a little bit different because we might have some background information because we're not first responders. So, you know, we might have that information and compare that to what we're seeing when we're speaking to somebody in the interview setting. But for a first responder, if they start asking certain questions and they're getting some multiple data points and like, huh, is there further screening tools that are available for maybe an officer to employ respectfully to then fully understand or more better understand, you know, the nature of maybe this individual's disability and play to their strengths as compared to relegating them to somebody who's not capable of relaying a story. Because that's a big that's a big problem uh, with a lot of cases is people automatically assign, oh, they have they have you know an intellectual developmental disability. They don't have capacity. They're not able to you know. Uh, relay their experience to me. So therefore we shut the case down and I don't do an investigation. Or I further victimize the person by going, oh yeah, all right. So you said this happened, they stole your money and, and they raped you. And then, you know, they don't, they're like, oh, this person's crazy. And they, they move them, they remove them from the home under the mental health law thinking that, you know, that that's my assessment. And without really having the tools to further assess what's going on. So I like what you said, but is there anything else that that they can do to further screen on the scene? Uh, we don't have any uh, set screening tools besides what we push with the with the with the rare model and the ability to identify. And then going back to what we talked about, you're familiar with the term ombudsman or a buds person now. Mm -hmm. uh, and those those advocates that are in their life, we talk about that network of supports that needs to become the play. Uh, recognizing that those individuals may need to be asked and brought into the scene and not, and that's why well, I, I need to speak to him or her. What's the role of the people in their lives that they, because they're going to, if they're more involved, there's going to be those individuals in their lives. You know, that, that's, the, that's the point I'm stressing earlier. Uh, the more involved someone is, there will be those supports or someone to assist uh, with daily living skills. But to that point, knowing them better, you know, just simply, just simply knowing them better who can then, uh, maybe ask the question a little differently. Uh, and I know sometimes in law enforcement, we have to be cautious on what road we go down as far as who's, who's asking what. I respect that. Uh, but we also need to be, to be aware that that's going to be the best way for us to get that answer uh, if done right. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fantastic suggestion, Dave, is actually asking, you know, do you have support people in your life and, and determining who they are and then getting more background. That's they have, awesome. have to come to play, have to have to rec and we teach that we actually that's a heavy piece we teach in our emergency management training, but it comes to play in the everyday life of individuals uh, across the discipline spectrum. Uh, and to what degree, you know, there's many people out there that don't need anyone that don't have anyone that never will need anyone. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, again, you know, think about things like sensory disabilities as well. While uh, you know most 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 individuals are going to have not going to need any supports in their life, uh, there may be someone that can uh, assist in, in better responding or explaining. Someone who's an American Sign Language interpreter by law, you have to have an American Sign Language interpreter there, an ASL interpreter. Once you're starting to ask these questions, be it a victim or an offender. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just that's. And, and again, with some of this, you got to be conscious that the federal law, the ADAs may come to play if you're not doing this right. So if you, you made the comment about maybe discounting them or just saying that this is this, oh, this is that. Well, if, if that's the case and, and you haven't done your due diligence in bringing in those supports or recognizing how there's going to be another avenue to get some of those answers, you may be violating the ADA. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. have many cases out there with law enforcement where this has occurred and it goes back to those community supports and resources. Let me get the answer here and what we're supposed to do. You know, I we say when we train every police department and fire EMS 911, you have a question, call us. But where we start is in the states were in South Dakota, Virginia, Missouri, New York. Uh, we start with, and in their training manual is the local resource, well, statewide resources, where then they can get the local resources. So I say, I'll take your call anytime. That's my job. But start locally, because that's really who you want to be connecting with, who can point you from a statewide standpoint. And keep in mind, every state also has what we call protection and advocacy, which is a lot of them go by their disability rights. And then the state, disability rights, New York, I work with, disability rights, Louisiana, I'm working with, disability rights, Nebraska, I'm working with. Um, I was just with disability rights, South Dakota this weekend. Uh, their, their role is to provide that guidance specific to uh, legal matters, not to, I mean, they're also the ones that are going to be be coming at you if you're not doing it right but use them as a resource because they'll also point you they don't want to be coming at you they don't want to be be litigating the intent is let's address this now if you have a hiccup uh, you're not sure be transparent come back around and use these folks i always say it's easier to pass the test if you studied first right like so if you if you have an opportunity to bring your awareness up through, you know, a training like what you're talking about, Dave, or, and, or lots of ants here, increasing, you know, your understanding by outreach, whatever that looks like, understanding what your local resources are. Oh, internet search is all it takes. Really, it's not that complicated to access information. We don't even need like, you know, phone books anymore. You can push a couple buttons on your phone and have all the information at your fingertips. So I think that those are the things that that are really, really important for us to remember. It's, it's okay to say, I don't know, right? It's okay to say, I need to know more about this. Um, you know, this person is a person and deserves to be treated, you know, as such. I need to address them as an individual. And if I, if I don't know the answer, somebody might, and it's okay for me to say, you know, hey, this isn't my area of expertise or, hey, I shouldn't be putting this person to bed 15 times. Oh my God, I love, I'm going to keep that story forever in my head. Um, but those, those kinds of things I think really can, can make a difference. So I think I just answered my own question a little bit, Dave, but the last thing I'll ask you is, you know, what, so what are we going to do about it, right? What can we do? What can um, our listeners do regardless of their discipline um, to, you know, make, the world more accessible for folks with disabilities. Put the effort forward. Uh, you know, find find different avenues and groups that they can educate you. They can give you the information you need. Uh, start with your independent living centers. That's their role and their job. But there's a whole bunch of different avenues. You know, I'm short of telling people to Google information. Our website has a lot of information uh, that we can provide. Um, 
it, it just starts with, you know, it's really, again, it just starts with basic etiquette and interaction skills and, and per your, your life situation, you know, the neighbor, the neighborhood you live in, the community you live in, the place you go to, the place you worship, um, the different things you're involved with, your volunteer groups, uh, and just think, you know, view people as people, you know, this is, I, I we say humankind, right let, let's just let's just recognize individuals for for what they can be the glasses we all have challenges there's no one that's perfect we, we talk about how you know raise your hand if you're perfect no we're all interdependent uh every one of us we we mm -hmm. rely on many different individuals and people in our lives some people rely on other people just a little bit more right but put yeah. the effort forward and from a first responder standpoint it starts with the sheriffs it starts with the chiefs it starts with the administrators, uh, you know, make this a priority. This is not something that's that's going to happen once in a while. We're not talking about a topic area that's a maybe. We're talking about a topic area that's a must. Mm -hmm. And and again, if you reflect back to federal law, the ADA is hanging over your head. There's a Department of Justice uh, called a quote that says, everything a, a police officer or sheriff deputy does is related to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. So, you know, know that it that it's 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 happening every day. It's happening with your officers right now somewhere, um, and and you want to do the best. And it's really per, personalize it because it's going to be in your life and it's going to happen uh, to you personally. Be it living long enough or a, an unfortunate situation, uh, but in your family, put the effort forward. Well, thanks so much, Dave. That this is a great conversation. Oh my goodness! And uh, and Dermot hit you with some pretty hard questions, but I, I think <laughs> I think all in all, <laughs> we uh, we got we got through them. And I think it's you know everything that you said. Just get yourself out there, ask some questions, and um, you know put put the effort in. And you know it's it's going to come up. We know it's going to come up. Disability affects such a, a large portion of our population. So it's going to come up in your work, sort of whether you like it or not, you know, whether it's the reason why you get out of bed in the morning or not, it's going to affect you. So, um, you know, let's just work together to, to do the best job that we can, because nobody's perfect, but we can always improve and make sure that we're, we're maybe better tomorrow than we were today. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, Dave. Dave, thank you. Absolutely. Great thank conversation. You. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.